Well, our scripture reading from this morning uh, comes from the book of Lamentations, chapter 3, verses 19 through 27. Uh, and if you are using one of the pew Bibles in the rack in front of you, you can pull that out. And uh, there's uh, found on page 688. So Lamentations, chapter 3. Verses 19 through 27, page 688. Also, if you're here this morning and you don't own a Bible of your own, uh, would love for you to take that Bible in front of you uh, with you as a gift from us. So hear God's word from Lamentations chapter 3, beginning in verse 19. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall, My soul continually remembers that it is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait. To the soul who seeks him, it is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, thank you, Bill, for reading uh, God's word for us, and I'll add my welcome to his. Uh, My name's Paul uh, Brandis. I have the privilege and honor of serving here at the Brookside campus as the associate pastor. And I hope that you all had a wonderful a holiday weekend, a happy Thanksgiving to you. Um, and even though as I offer uh, kind of a warm welcome, I, I know that for some this time of year can be uniquely uh, difficult and painful. A recent loss or uncertainty about the future or loneliness can make the holidays a really hard time for folks. And I'm sure that that characterizes where some of us are at this morning. So as we normally do, I want to open our time in prayer um, and ask for God's help in understanding his word, but also offer a prayer uh, for us uh, that we would do well to support one another during these uh, holiday times, which can be difficult for some. Let's pray. Father, we are truly thankful for so many gifts of grace that come from your hand, for your work in building this church, for a place to gather, a beautiful building to gather on Sunday mornings to worship, and for your ever-present care for your people. I ask that you be near to those who feel loneliness, grief, and loss during this time of year. You know, Lord, the hurts, regrets, and brokenness in this room, and we entrust those burdens to your wise and loving care. We're also thankful for your word, which has all that we need for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in right living. Equip us this morning by the power of your spirit to obey your word in this book and to place our hope in what will truly satisfy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, there aren't many things in this life that are worse than waiting. I'll admit it, I hate to wait. And in a related note, I'm also really bad at waiting. Those two things are probably connected, maybe. Uh, Kids, I mean, you know what I'm talking about, right? Doesn't it feel like, as a child, you are always waiting? Uh, You want dessert? Well, you got to wait until dinner is over. We had that argument with our two-year-old last night. You want to ride that ride at Worlds of Fun? Uh, Sorry, you got to wait until you're this tall, not this tall. Your birthday, Christmas, well, those only come around once a year. 
I mean, kids, you know what I'm talking about. It feels like you're always waiting. And as it turns out, myself and, and the kids in the room, we're not alone in our struggles with waiting. Uh, a few years ago, the New York Times uh, wrote an article where they called waiting the drudgery of unoccupied time. Uh, the n- title of this article was, Why Waiting is Torture. I mean, that's maybe a little bit excessive, but it gets at the point, I think. Uh, this article, it's, it's actually really fascinating. It's about the psychology of lines, and the general thesis is that humans are terrible at waiting. I, we're so bad at waiting, the article makes this point, that we give in to impulse buys at the grocery store to the tune of $5.5 billion every single year. That's billion with a B. Humans are really bad, as it turns out, at waiting. The article says, the tabloids and packs of gum offer relief from the agony of waiting. The agony of waiting. We've all felt that, haven't we? And not just from a long line, either. We wait for so much more than just the checkout counter, don't we? We wait for a new job, a good test score, an acceptance letter. We wait for middle school, then high school, then college, then graduation. We wait for a spouse, for a positive pregnancy test. We wait for a diagnosis, and and then we wait anxiously for a cure. We wait for the wayward child to return home. In so many ways, to be human is to wait. In fact, let me ask you this morning, right now, what are you waiting for? Right now, in your life, what are you waiting for? My guess is that many of you thought of something immediately. Hopefully, it wasn't for this sermon to be over. (laughs) We just got started, folks. But I also imagine that the dominant emotions that were associated with whatever you thought of were annoyance, frustration, pain, or maybe even overwhelming anxiety, depression, or despair. I just don't know that there's any way around it. In so many ways, waiting is the worst. In so many ways, waiting is the worst. I mean, it just is. I've felt with you, like you, the agony of waiting time and time again in my life. But this morning, in Lamentations 3, we're going to discover a radical idea. Waiting is the worst in so many ways, but it's not a waste. Waiting is hard, it's a struggle, there's pain involved. In so many ways, it's the worst, but it is not a waste. Now again, that's a fairly radical claim, but it's one that we see clearly in God's Word. Bill already read these verses for us in Lamentations 3. We'll return to them again, verses 25 through 27. The Lord is good to those who wait for Him, to the soul who seeks Him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Now, this chapter, Lamentations 3, it's a carefully constructed poem. In Hebrew, it actually has a couple different stanzas for each letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And the Hebrew word for good is tov. And and you see, good is repeated three times in these verses. Tov, tov, tov. Because it's the part of the poem that begins with the letter T, or tov. 
And so the main idea in these verses is good, good, good. Three times the author of this poem says it is good for us to wait. Good. It's not a waste at all. And verse 27 may strike us as a bit odd. I mean, we might ask, what is this about young people bearing yokes? But the point of these verses is essentially straightforward. So much of life is about waiting that it's good for you to learn how to wait as young as you possibly can. That's what verse 27 is getting at. But, but this leads us to, to this big question. How can waiting be good for us when we so often experience it as the worst? How can the Bible in the same sentence describe waiting as a yoke but then say that it is good for us to bear it? And the reason is because there is a sizable gap, a really, really big gap between how we typically and usually wait and how we ought to wait. In other words, there is a difference between the waiting of this world and godly waiting. And this morning, we're going to see that godly waiting faces present pain. We're going to see that godly waiting returns to the truth. We're going to see that godly waiting clings to the promise. So first, godly waiting faces present pain. Now, you might be wondering what you missed. Because I've already referenced and read from our passage this morning, Lamentations 3, and uh, for thoughtful listeners out there, you, you might have thought, wait a second, what did I miss? Just last week, we were studying the book of Jeremiah. Did I go into a coma and not real? Like, what's happening here? And if you did think that, congratulations, you, you caught us. We're cheating. We're cheating just a little bit. Uh, because today is the last Sunday in our sermon series that we've titled Life task too big. And over the past couple of months, what we've been doing in this teaching series is, is examining the life of the prophet Jeremiah. And this morning, as we turn the corner into the Advent season, we're stepping out of the book of Jeremiah and into the book of Lamentations. And these two books of the Bible, Jeremiah and Lamentations, they're tied very closely together. Some scholars even attribute the writing of Lamentations to the prophet Jeremiah and it's unclear if, we, if that's the case or if Jeremiah really did that because the book of Lamentations, it, it's silent about who its author is. It doesn't, it doesn't make a claim about that. But it is right and good to read these two books closely together. And we ought to do that because one of the primary points of Jeremiah's preaching, one of the things that he said over and over and over again was that eventually, it's going to take a long time, but eventually... Uh, Jerusalem, God's holy city, uh, was going to be destroyed. And if you remember this, a couple weeks ago, I talked about how Jeremiah was like a ping pong ball, right? Going back and forth between God and the people. The city will be destroyed. No, it won't. <laughs> yes, it will. No, it won't. Just back and forth across the table until it finally was. In 587 BC, the Babylonians, they came and they overtook Jerusalem, the holy city. And the book of Lamentation, it, it laments this event. It looks back, it's a memorial, it's five poems that are set up as a memorial to the city of Jerusalem. And so Jeremiah, who lived before, during, and after the destruction of Jerusalem, he could have written the words that are recorded for us in Lamentations. Um, or if he didn't write them, then certainly he would have had a similar perspective. 
And the book of Lamentations is a bit of a forgotten book. You may have even had trouble finding it this morning because it's tucked in between Jeremiah and Ezekiel, which are these major tomes. You kind of flip through Jeremiah and you're like, oh, I'm already in Ezekiel. It's like, nope, Lamentations, right there. Don't miss it. And it's a shame that it's a forgotten book because it's beautiful. It's not easy. It's not clean or tidy. But it's incredibly beautiful. And our passage, our chapter this morning, chapter 3, reveals this tension really powerfully. Like the rest of the book, Lamentations 3 is a poem and it features the voice of a lonely man who is speaking and praying out of his intense suffering. Speaking and praying out of his intense pain and suffering, acting as a representative for all of God's people. And that pain and suffering brings us back to our first point. Godly waiting faces present pain. Godly waiting faces present pain. Verses 1 through 3 of chapter 3 read this way. I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. And as difficult as these verses are, as they describe present pain... As we continue on, over the next 15 verses, the picture only builds. The images of suffering and hardship, they actually grow in intensity. And they combine into this overwhelming picture of suffering and present pain. Here's just a sampling of some of the images in the next 15 verses. Verse 4, flesh and skin wasting away, broken bones. Verse 7, imprisoned, chained, unable to escape. Verse 10, attack from a bear, a lion, torn to pieces. Verse 12, a target for arrows, piercing the kidney. And verse 16, chewing on dirt, covered in ash. Over and over and over again, these verses, they, they come at this idea of present pain, building this, these images, these increasingly difficult and hard images until you just... You're overwhelmed by what this author is experiencing and by what he's going through. And this probably feels familiar because in so many ways, this chapter and really the, the whole book of Lamentations, it echoes what we've already covered in this teaching series. You see, these years in Judah's history were some of the hardest. They were some of the darkest and time and time again, during that hardship and pain, recorded for us in the book of Jeremiah, recorded for us here in Lamentations, and even in other books of the Bible, God's people, they turned their eyes to heaven and they told God about what they were going through. They weren't silent about it. They didn't hold back. They said hard things, asked hard things. They cried. They complained. And all the while, they were waiting they were waiting for salvation, for deliverance, for God to show up and knock on their door, for Him to be again who they knew Him to be in the past. Because you see, godly waiting faces present pain. It doesn't bury its head in the stand. It doesn't ignore the brutal facts. Godly waiting doesn't approach God with a mask on in prayer. No, godly waiting looks around with eyes wide open, assesses the situation with honesty, and then lays it at God's feet, no matter how bleak it is, no matter how broken or ugly it might be. And as we know, it got incredibly ugly for God's people during these years. 
In fact, you probably noticed in verses 1 through 3, and and, and certainly if you read the rest of the, the chapter, what comes through so powerfully and overwhelmingly is that the author makes it very clear that his present pain, his suffering, is a result of God's punishment for his sin. That's why he is experiencing present pain. I mean, and that's a, an incredibly challenging topic, isn't it? Punishment for sin. I mean, I feel that with you this morning. It's like, hey, happy Thanksgiving. I hope the turkey was great. Have you thought lately about how God punishes sin? I mean, again, I feel that. And this morning, we don't, we don't have time to do an extensive theology of evil and suffering and how that ties in with sin. But it's so clear in the chapter that we can't ignore it entirely. So let me make just a couple quick comments. First, I, I know this is true in my own life. We think far, far too lightly of sin. Far too lightly of sin. Both generally speaking and our own sin personally. Church, listen. Sin sits at the root of every single problem on the face of the earth. The schoolyard bully teasing unmercifully, sin. The oppressive boss encouraging unethical business practices, sin. The horrors of disease and natural disaster, sin. Folks, our capital P problem in this world has a name. The Bible calls it what it is. It's it's sin. And we take it far, far too lightly. God is the only one who sees sin what it is truly 100% of the time. And, And if we saw sin as we ought, as God sees sin, then we wouldn't be so quick to scoff or bristle at his judgment or punishment of it. Second, when we bristle at God's punishment of sin, we betray a subtle form of hypocrisy. Because you see, most of the time, you've probably noticed this as well, most of the time, most people are okay with punishment and justice. Criminals ought to be put in jail. Lawbreakers should pay for their crimes. After the tragedy of 9-11, the calls for retribution came immediately. But when it's our sin on the line, when it's our rebellion, when the punishment would be directed towards us, But we sing a different tune, don't we? But we can't have it both ways. Either we want a God who judges sin and deals with it, with all of it, or we don't want that. And the final comment is that the Bible is crystal clear that suffering is not always the result of personal sin. I want to say that again. Suffering is not always the result of personal sin. We can't believe that because it's dead wrong, and it was also the prevailing viewpoint when the Old and New Testaments were written. And so we see all over the place, we see that this, it's far more nuanced, it's far more complicated than that. But this was the viewpoint. One one instance, just one example, is the book of Job. So Job experiences this incredible suffering and hardship, right? And everyone in his life, from his so-called friends to his wife, they say, Job, it's because you sinned. It has to be because you sinned. Because again, that was the prevailing viewpoint. Sin equals suffering and punishment from God. But the reality of the situation was far more complex than that. And really, that's actually the point of the entire book of Job. The bottom line point of that book is that our world is incredibly complex. 
and withholding or dispensing justice in it takes an eternally cosmic vantage point. And only one person has an eternally cosmic vantage point. It's God. The book of Job kind of sets you up, it, it, not in, like a, in, a, in a bad way because it, it does press into this, but you almost think reading the book that you're going to get an answer to the question of why bad things happen to good people. You start reading it and you're like, okay, I'm going to get an answer. But then by the end of it, you realize that there, there isn't a simple answer for something like that. And we do ourselves a disservice and we do our view of God a disservice when we try to boil down such a massive question like that into th- you know, simple answers with one or two subpoints. The point of the book of Job is our world is complex. It's both beautiful and it's really, really broken too. So if we shouldn't simplify suffering and evil or look for easy answers, then what is the proper response? Well, we've already covered it this morning. Let me frame it in the form of a question. Are you taking your present pain to God? Are you taking your present pain to God? In the midst of the waiting, which can be so painful, are you taking it to God? We've hit this point over and over and over again in this series because it's one of the dominant themes of Jeremiah and Lamentations. When life becomes too much for us, for whatever the reason, our default responses as humans, they fall way short. What do we do typically? We blame God. We run away. We hide how we're truly feeling. We make simple assumptions. We avoid Him. We turn away from Him. But as we've covered over and over and over again, God wants something different. God wants you. He wants you. He wants you to come to him with all the complexity, with all the messiness, with all the questions. And yes, he does want you to come to him with confession and repentance. And we shouldn't miss that either, confession and repentance. Because while, yes, the Bible is so crystal clear that we can't draw a one-to-one connection between our sin and our suffering, it would be really naive of us to think that we never suffer because of our sin, wouldn't it? And so we shouldn't. We shouldn't be that naive. We should bring everything to God, including our sin. We should ask Him to search us, to know us. We should ask Him to find the false ways in us, to bring them out of darkness and into light. I can't say it any better than our author this morning says it. In Lamentations 3.40, let us test and examine our ways and return to God. Let us test and examine our ways and return to God. That word return, it has baked into it this idea of turning, this idea of heading one direction and then realizing that it's not the right direction and you need to return. You need to confess. You need to repent. This word has the idea of bringing our sin to God and throwing ourselves at his feet, begging him for his grace and mercy again and again and again, day after day after day. Because what's true, friends, what's true this morning and true every day is that through all of our sin, God has remained faithful. Throughout all of our wanderings, in spite of our wanderings, God has remained steadfast. Just like we sang this morning, steadfast. And that brings us to our second point this morning. Godly waiting returns to the truth. Godly waiting faces present pain, absolutely. But it also returns to the truth. 
It faces the pain in all of its complexities, but that's just the starting point. We can't end there. Godly waiting returns to the truth, and we see this progression happen in Lamentations 3. You know, verses 19 and 20, they contain this mini turn. And they read this way, Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it, and it's bowed down within me. The author is petitioning God to remember his suffering. Maybe you've done something similar. Are you even there, God? Do you remember what I'm going through down here? Because I can't think about anything else. I continually remember it. And it depresses me down to the depths. But in this petition, you can see the beginnings of a return. You can can see the beginnings of a turning. Because verses 1 through 18, it's a prayer, it's poetry, but mostly what the author is doing is talking about his circumstances. He's describing his present pain. But now, in verse 19, instead of talking about his circumstances, he is talking to God. And that's the right move. We're headed in the right direction. And then verse 21 comes. And this is one of the most surprising 180s in all of the Bible. This turn here. It reads this way. But, this I call to mind. But, this little tiny contraction. But, in in the spite of everything. I mean, you read Lamentations 1. You read Lamentations 2. You read the first 20 verses of Lamentations 3. And it's really overwhelming. It'll put you in a tough spot. I mean, it just kind of hits you. And despite all of that, but all of that, this I call to mind. I'm remembering something. I'm remembering something. And because I'm remembering it, what I'm thinking about, what I'm remembering it, gives me hope. Therefore, I have hope. And this, the fact that there is hope, is just, it's unbelievable. Because you see, the end of verse 18 Verses 1 through 18, they just drive at present pain. And the last thing that the author says at the very end of verse 18 is that his hope has been extinguished. It's been blotted out. I I hoped and it set me up for failure. I don't have hope anymore. But then just three verses later, because the author calls something to mind, his hope is being renewed. This is a 180 degree turn. And it leaves us in this spot of going, What is verse 22? What is he thinking about that is renewing his hope? And verses 22 through 24 are some of the most beautiful verses in the entire Bible. This morning, just let them wash over you. This is what the author was thinking about that renewed his hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. It never ends. His mercies never come to an end. No, his mercies are new every single morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, my inheritance, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. In the Jesus Storybook Bible, Sally Lloyd-Jones refers to the steadfast love of the Lord. Right, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. And she refers to that love as God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. Do you hear that this morning? Do you need to hear that this morning? God's love. God's love is never stopping. It's never giving up. It's his unbreaking, his always and forever love. That sounds like something that's worth hoping in, doesn't it? The Bible Project video 
and the book of Lamentations is fantastic. And the author, summarizing the, the thrust of chapter 3, summarizing these verses, he, he says this, the narrator says, the poet reasons, if God is consistent enough to bring his justice on human evil, then he will also be consistent with his covenant promise to not let evil get the final word. And so for this poet, God's judgment is the seedbed of hope for the future. I mean, I love that image. The seedbed of hope. God's consistency, his faithfulness, his steadfastness to both deal with sin, but then also to not let evil have the final word. It becomes the seedbed of which our hope can grow once again, even in the midst of present pain. And so I wonder, do, do we have that seedbed? Are you returning to the truth? Are you calling to mind the Lord's great faithfulness to you day after day? His faithfulness to you in spite of you? Are you reminding yourself of the Lord's ever-renewing mercies morning after morning after morning? I mean, it's the Thanksgiving season, isn't it? Are you really grateful for God, for who He is and what He's done? Or are you just grateful because it's something that we all do in November? What blinds you to God's mercies? What prevents you from waking each morning honestly grateful for the breath that is still in your lungs? And please don't mistake me, because this is far deeper than a silver lining theology. God is adamantly opposed to the one who looks at present pain, often in others, and scoffs at it. People do that. I mean, this isn't, look at everything that you have, all of your gifts, get over your pain. No, that's not what this is. Because remember, godly waiting faces present pain. It reckons with it honestly, and then it doesn't remain there. It takes that pain to God, and then it rests in his never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. And as it does that, as we return to the truth, to rest in God's steadfast love, we do so by clinging to the promise which is our final point this morning. Godly waiting clings to the promise. Let's return to where we started this morning, the middle of Lamentations 3, 25 through 27, because you see verse 26, the end of verse 26, it gives us the answer to the question of what are we waiting for? What is godly waiting ultimately directed at? Verse 26, it is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. So the question, what are Christians waiting for, is answered by this refrain, we are waiting for the salvation of the Lord. And we shouldn't miss that the person that wrote these words, the author of Lamentations 3, don't miss that he waited his entire life for that promise and it was not to be fulfilled in his day. Can you imagine the struggle of that waiting? How hard it must have been to wait and hope. Jeremiah experienced that same struggle. I mean, he died long before this promise was to be fulfilled. And, and last week, uh, Bill uh, unpacked the words of Jeremiah's message of the coming of a new covenant in Jeremiah 31. So Jeremiah had the duty to proclaim the coming of the promise, but never got to fully see it. So he, he, he unpacks the new covenant, and then two chapters later in Jeremiah 33, 
we read of the one through whom the new covenant will come. Jeremiah 33, verses 14 through 16. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch, a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. Verse 16. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. In those days, Judah will be saved. Through who? How does this salvation come? Through the righteous branch, none other than Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Jesus sent from heaven to bring us back to our Creator and to our Father. And again, for Jeremiah... And for everyone who lived before the coming of Jesus, they waited and they clung to the hope of a promise that was never realized in their day. What a new morning mercy it is for us to wake up every morning on this side, to wake up on the side that knows that the salvation of the Lord came. It came in the person of Jesus. And yet we wait still, don't we? For though the promise has been realized, it has not been fully realized. Jesus came the first time to bring the new covenant and to provide a pathway for eternal life, but he didn't yet destroy sin. On the cross, Jesus defeated sin, but he did not yet destroy it completely, once and for all. And so we, today, you and I, we wait in hope, clinging to the promise that one day Jesus will return again to finally complete his work of destroying sin and making all things new again. This is what the Advent season is all about. Advent means arrival. And as Christians, we wait between the two arrivals of Jesus, between his first coming and his second coming. But as we've covered this morning, we can't wait as the world waits. We just can't because godly waiting is different. Godly waiting faces present pain. It returns to the truth and it clings to the promise. And because of that promise, because of Jesus, we're called to wait in hope. Which is our final question for this morning. Are you waiting in hope? Are you waiting in hope? Now, you might be wondering what it looks like on a practical day-to-day -day basis to wait in hope. I'm with you. I'll admit, this isn't the most practical of questions. And so this morning, as we close, I want to zero in on just one practice, one practical practice of waiting in hope. And it's a practice that the church has been practicing for 2,000-plus years, communion. The taking of the bread and the cup has been the rhythm of the church for centuries as a means of clinging to the promise of Jesus while we are waiting in hope. And don't miss the active aspect of this practice of waiting in hope. Because you see, we tend to think of waiting as something that's passive, don't we? 
This is one of the other ways that worldly waiting and godly waiting are different. Waiting is unoccupied time in the dentist's office, in the grocery store line. It's passive. But godly waiting is so far from passive. It's active. In fact, we read about that in Lamentations 3 this morning. Verse 25 said, It is good for us to wait. It is good for the soul who seeks him. Directly tying waiting with seeking. Seeking is such an active verb. Godly waiting is not passive. And this is one of the reasons why we invite you to come to the communion table each and every week to awkwardly kind of slide out of your pew and to wait in line to receive. I'll be really honest. I didn't grow up in a church that had you get up and come to receive communion. So it was uncomfortable for me when we moved here and we started to take communion that way. I wasn't used to it. And of course, over the last few years, it's become comfortable for me. But I'm well aware that for many of you, that if you're new or if you didn't grow up that way, it's kind of it's a different thing. And of course, for some of you, you did grow up in that tradition of coming to the table. But here's one of the reasons why I now love it. Not just because it's familiar to me now, but because it is an active means of waiting for hope. And I don't don't think that churches that pass the communion plate are wrong, but I love that we invite you to come each and every week because you have to make a choice to get up out of your pew, slide out, and come wait in line to receive the bread and the cup. And each and every week that you do that, that you get up out of your pew to take communion, that's an active move on your part to wait on the salvation of the Lord. And so this morning, will you come? Will you actively wait in hope with us by touching and tasting the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ? I've already explained one of the main ways of how we practice communion. We, we come, and there will be four stations, two in the front and two in the back, Gluten-free communion elements, if you need them, are in the back right station. We invite you to gather in groups of six to eight, and then when the server has directed you to do so, you can partake together. We practice open communion here at Christ Community, which means that you don't have to be an official member to join us. If you're clinging to the promise of Jesus, and if you're waiting in hope, please come. If you're not a Christian, we're so glad that you're here. Please feel zero pressure to join us this morning. We, we don't want you to feel like you have to say something about yourself that's not true. With this time during communion, perhaps you could reflect on the message and, and maybe ask yourself the question, if I'm not waiting on the Lord, what am I waiting on? Finally, we have prayer available for you in the back by the sound booth. Whatever present pain is happening in your life right now, someone will be there who would love, love to pray for it and take it to the Lord with you. Well, on the night that he was to be betrayed, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it. He gave it to his disciples, and he said, take, eat, this is my body. And when they had finished eating, he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. In a moment after I pray, the servers will come forward. Let's bow our heads. Father, help us to wait well. Waiting's the worst, but it's not a waste. And something's happening to us, very important, Lord. There's formation going on while we wait. You're shaping us to be more like your son Jesus, the promise 
who we are ultimately waiting for. So help us to wait well, Lord. Give us strength to do that. Especially, Lord, help us to wait well in the communion line and consider what it means that we are great sinners and we need a great Savior. Pray all this in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. Come when you're ready.